You know, when I was a lot younger, I always kind of hated the idea of having to study history. I didn't mind school in general, and I didn't really mind history, but it really wasn't my favorite subject. Names, dates, places, all of that, you know, it just, I didn't, I didn't see all the point to it. I loved math, anything mathematical, anything to do with technology and science, and, and I just wasn't really into the history side of things. But, you know, I don't know why it is. But over the last few years, I've come to really enjoy and love studying history. Maybe it's because my wife loves history, like nothing else. <laughs> Maybe it's because I've found over the years, history has to do a lot more with stories that happened in the past than just disconnected names and dates and places long, long ago and far, far, far away. As you get to know more of it, you kind of see the connections, and especially when you can go and walk in the places where these historical events happened and see the pictures and, and, and hear the stories. And all of a sudden, instead of just a bunch of stuff long ago and far away, it connects. And the thing that connects the most, at least for me, is when I realize that who I am today and who all of us are, who we are today, is a direct product, direct descendants of who they were in history whether they were our forefathers and the, who framed the Constitution, who fought in the Revolutionary War or the World Wars, or whether they were maybe the patriarchs that gave us the stories of the Word of God. You know, it has been said that those who fail to remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And you know, as I've studied history, I've seen that to be very, very true. Now, that's not to say that if we do remember the past, that we're immune from repeating it any, anyway, because sometimes we can remember the past and still do the same mistakes. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that uh, that is. Maybe it's just human nature. But as I read my Bible, I see time and time and time again, it seems like people, God's people, good, honest, intelligent people, are making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And sometimes I want to just scream back across the pages of history, when will you ever learn? Of course, then I'm screaming to myself the same thing. When will I ever learn, right? How many times did the children of Israel start murmuring and complaining against Moses? And then the judge, God would remove his protection and the judgments and the plagues would come and many would die. And then they would turn to God and they would turn to Moses and Aaron and say, we're sorry, pray for us so that these plagues will stop. And dutifully, Moses and Aaron would pray and God in his mercy would stop the plagues. The people would return to God. And then, no sooner did they come back to God that it seemed they turned right back around and did the same thing all over again. And for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, that was the story of their lives. It's a sad history, but really, you know, it's not the saddest history that we have in the Bible. Because always when they sinned, Moses and Aaron were there. And they could go to them and through them, have God to uh, have them intercede with God for them. And Moses and Aaron were there as pillars, as pillars, as leaders among the congregation, so that though they would fall astray, yet they would always come back to God. No, I believe the saddest part of the history of Israel 
begins after the death of Moses, after the death of Joshua, after the death of the leaders that were alive through the conquest of of Canaan in the time of Joshua. And we find that story in the second chapter of Judges, which is where our scripture reading was taken from. Judges chapter 2, and I want to read just a few verses here, because these few verses summarize the gist of this story. The story of Israel's history after the death of Moses and Joshua, until the time of the kings of Israel. Judges chapter 2 and verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works which the Lord had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. I'd like to live to be 110 years old, wouldn't you? That's quite a long life, maybe, maybe. I I had a lot of people coming by, uh, this is not in the sermon, but a lot of people coming by the Health Expo. And one of our magazines says, how to live longer and better. So I would hold that magazine out. I was like, here, would you like to live longer and better? And people would walk by without fail. They'd walk by and say, no. (laughs) And then some of them would start to laugh as they realized what they said, you know. Here, would you like to live longer and better? No. Not everyone wants to live all that long. (laughs) I guess life is hard. But 110 is a quite a long time to live. But eventually, what happened to Joshua happens to all of us. And of course, we look forward to the soon return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we expect him to come within our lifetimes. But we don't know when he is coming. And he's commanded us, not just us individually, but us collectively to be ready for him. So if his coming is delayed a few more years, what happens later? Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So, so Joshua lived 110 years old and he died. I'm going to go down to verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who are around them. And they bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. They're falling back. They're falling into idolatry, not just dabbling in idolatry, but they're falling into it and provoking God to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. And that is what is happening to Israel. They're sinning, they're rebelling against God, and they're suffering the consequences And it says there in verse 14, so they could no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, they were greatly distressed. And verse 16, verse 16, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. And they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. And they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. And they did not do so. You know, we read this and they say, how could they turn so quickly from the way? But then when I point the finger out that way, how many do I have pointing back at myself? <laughs> how quickly do we turn out of the way which the Lord has directed us to go in? Almost no sooner have we gotten done. I don't know about you, but there's been times when I read my Bible and I said, oh Lord, thank you for showing me the way. And no sooner had I laid the Bible 
doubt and got up to go about my day, then I forgot what everything that I had just read. You ever that ever happened to you, or is that just me? That ever happened to you? It's happened. It's happened to me. I know that they turned quickly out of the way. Um, verse verse eighteen. And then the Lord raised up judges for them. I'm sorry. When the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity for their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. You know, this is another picture of God's mercy. Every time they would repent, they would rebel. God would have pity and mercy on his wayward people. Like the story of the prodigal son, the father standing there longing, longing, longing for his son to come home. Here's the God of the Old Testament. God of the Old Testament, mind you. This is the God many people think is harsh and angry and waiting, longing with pity for his children to come back home. He doesn't want to see them suffering these judgments. And so the people would return to God and would serve God because of the judge that God had sent to bring the people back. But this is the sad part. This is the sad part, verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. And they did not cease from their own doings nor from their own stubborn way. And those few verses summarize the first 17 chapters of the book of Judges. Time and time and time again. Children of Israel would fall away from God. They would fall away from God. They would suffer the judgments. A a judge, a a, uh, leader would come up. God would raise this leader up. They would return to God. But then they would turn back as soon as that leader had died. It was as though... The the Reformation could never last longer than the lifetime of the leader. And I have to wonder, why is that? Why is that? And finally, it gets down to the point in Judges 17 that even the leaders, the official leaders in Israel, were so corrupt, they were leading Israel into idolatry. And it says in Judges 17, 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Yes, it's perhaps one of the saddest stories in the Bible. Not the stories of all the wicked leaders, but the stories of the great leaders, like Joshua, like Samuel, that despite all of their greatness, all of the wonderful reforms that they worked in Israel, when they died, the Reformation did not continue much beyond their lifetime. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We'll We'll read another part of this story. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We're skipping over almost all of the judges now. And Samuel came, remember, as a young child. He was a miracle child. His mother brought him to the temple there, and the high priest Eli, who was, it seems, a good leader, but failed to rear his sons to follow God. And here... Now Samuel is living with this high priest and somehow, some way, he comes, he, he's brought up to follow and serve God despite Eli's sons being so wicked and he becomes a great prophet and judge in Israel. And all of the days of Samuel, all of the days of Samuel, he is leading Israel. Now Israel's not perfect. Remember, he anoints Saul to be king. Well, this is actually after this, after this story, but before Saul... Um, 
Samuel was the judge of Israel, like these other judges. Even though he's a prophet and a priest, he's a judge. There, he's judging Israel. But Samuel's sons are a lot like Eli's sons. Let's read it there. First Samuel uh, chapter eight, verses one through five. First Samuel chapter eight, one through five. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel. The name of the second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So Samuel's sons are nothing like Samuel himself. They're, They're trying to lead Israel, but they're corrupt. They're corrupt and they're doing it for their own dishonest gain. Then all the elders of Israel came and gathered together, came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Look, you're, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Samuel, we cannot have your sons being the leaders of Israel. We need to have a king who can be strong and who can lead our armies into battle, not just a judge who goes to God for all of our problems. I don't know what the problem was with going to God for all of our problems. I think that was a good thing. And of course, that was God's original plan. And really, if you look at the heart of it, this whole issue about Samuel's sons, even though his sons were corrupt, this whole issue is bigger than, bigger than what the elders are saying because really, the people want a king. They're rebelling against God and they're wanting a king. And the, the rest of the, of the passage goes on to describe how this plays out. And uh, they reject God and they ask... God is their leader and asking for an earthly king. But I have to wonder, how much did Samuel's sons play into it? Clearly they had a part to play. And I have to say, looking back through the pages of history, how many times have I wanted to just take one of those leaders by the, by the shoulders and shake him a little bit and say, hey, wake up, you're not going to live forever. Samuel, you're going to get old one of these days. And who is going to take your place? I'm not trying to fault Samuel too bad. Even the best parents can have kids that turn away, and we all know that. Adam and Eve were God's perfect children, and what did they do? Okay, so I'm not trying to, all of you parents, I'm not trying to say it's your fault because of what your children have done. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm saying is this, as parents, as leaders, as members of our church, who follows you? When you're gone, Who's going to take your place? What happens? It would seem like it'd be wonderful if some of the greatest leaders of this world could just take a pill that would make them live forever. Wouldn't that be great? People like Moses. I mean, what, what, if, what if Moses could have just taken a pill and he could have just kept on, kept on going? Joshua. I mean, he's courage to, to knock down the walls of Jericho. Of course, it was God's power. I mean, if Joshua hadn't died, I mean, wouldn't that have been wonderful? But then I have to think, what is human nature? What would it have been like if someone, if a leader became like a superman and just lived and lived and lived? What happens to a lot of leaders today after they have leadership for a certain amount of time? You know, there's a saying that power corrupts, isn't there? And even the best, even the best leaders who don't lead by power, who lead by influence and, and, and everything else, right? The right way that leaders should. Even the best leaders, sooner or later, can become corrupted by this sense of power. So it's really, it's really not a bad thing, the way things are, because if we had leaders that lived forever, pretty soon we'd have tyrants that lived forever. Even, even the best of us. Yes, 
hundreds, perhaps thousands of great men have come and gone from the stage of this world like shooting stars passing through a dark night. And as those shooting stars come across, they light up the way for millions for a brief second. But how much greater could it be in this world if men and women, rather than being a shooting star, could be like a flickering candle, a candle held in the hand, but pressed close to another candle, to light a second candle, and a third and a fourth, until eventually those candles light the way across a thousand miles through a dark night to light the way back home. My friends, through the Old Testament, and yes, through many of the pages of history, we see many a shooting star. But once in a while, I see a candle. A candle that lights another candle. One example is the man Moses. Early, early in his ministry, Moses as he was leading the children of Israel. He was called by God to lead the children of Israel. He was one of the greatest men to ever walk this earth. And yet Moses accepted the advice of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now, on the pages of history, Jethro was not an important figure, not in the sense of Moses. He was not called with a special commission by God that we know of. And yet Moses... The great man listened to the advice of his father-in-law as he was leading the children of Israel. And Jethro saw that day and night, from dawn till dusk, Moses was spending his time judging the affairs of the, of the people. And Jethro says to Moses, Moses, you cannot do this. You are going to burn yourself out. Not only that, but, but you cannot possibly take care of a million people all by yourself. Find 70 leaders. Find 70 elders who are reputable men, good, honest, trustworthy men, and teach them and empower them to lead, to judge the people. They can take care of 90% of the cases. You take care of the few cases. It doesn't say 90%. I made that up, okay. (laughs) Whatever percentage it was, they can take care of most of it. You take care of the things that they can't deal with. And he did. He listened to their advice, and he set up not just the, the, the 70, but, but organizing units within all of the tribes of Israel so that there was a system of organization, a systematic government, not one man and a multitude, but groups of fifties and hundreds and thousands. And Moses taking care of the most important cases of leading not the people, but leading the leaders in this case. But there was another thing that Moses did there was another young man that came into the picture. We find him there in the battle between Israel and the Amalekites. These enemies of Israel had come, and Moses, by this time, he's an old man. He's over 80 years old already. He's not there with his sword on the front lines trying to fight the Amalekites. No, he's up on a mountain with Aaron and Hur. And he's holding up his hands in prayer to God, praying for the armies of Israel. And as he holds up his hands, this is a different story, but I've got to tell the story because I love the story. As he holds up his hands, he sees the armies of Israel prevailing and pushing back the Amalekites. But eventually his hands get tired and he starts to lower his hands down. And then Israel starts to retreat. 
And the Amalekites start to make headway. So he raises his hands back up. And the battle turns the other way. And pretty soon he can't hold his hands up. And so Aaron and Hur stand on either side of Moses, the prophet of God, and hold up his hands until the armies of Israel are victorious. But down in the plains, as a young man leading the armies of Israel, anyone know what his name was? Joshua. The young man, Joshua. Now Joshua led the armies of Israel, but Joshua was a servant of Moses. Joshua was a special man to Moses. I don't know how much Moses knew of where Joshua was going to go in the beginning. Maybe God had revealed to Moses early on that this is the man that you need to spend your time with, training and mentoring to take your place. Maybe Moses didn't know that in the beginning, but he knew the principle and he was empowering and imbibing in this young man the principles of leadership that God was showing to him. And when Moses would go up into the mountain, Joshua would go up into the mountain. And when Moses would lead the people, Joshua would be there quietly in the background, leading the people of God and listening to Moses and seeing what Moses was doing. We find in Deuteronomy 31, verses 77 and 8, Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8. You know the story. God had called Moses to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. They thought it would be a few weeks, maybe a couple years at most, from leaving Egypt to the conquest of Canaan. But there on the borders of Canaan, the people of Israel chose 12 spies to go in and spy out the land. Sorry, I told you to turn to, the, turn to the verse. I'm not going to read it quite yet. I've got to tell the story, and then I'll read the verse. They chose 12 spies to spy out the land. They went in. Among those was a man named Joshua. Of course, we know the, two, the other man's name, right? Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. We don't, know, I don't remember, we don't remember the other 10 names, right? But we know Joshua and Caleb. They come back, and 10 spies say, We saw giants in the land. We are like grasshoppers compared to all of these giants. There's no way we can go into the land of Canaan. But Joshua and Caleb came back with a totally different report. Let me ask you, did Joshua and Caleb see the same giants that the other ten saw? Yeah. Why didn't they talk about the giants? Ah, they knew the strength of the Lord. And now reading between the lines, I have to ask you, is it possible... What is the reason that Joshua, what was it that made Joshua's faith different from the faith of the other ten? Now, I don't know all the reasons. Perhaps Moses chose Joshua because he realized Joshua had this degree of faith, this degree of earnestness and connection to the Lord that the others didn't have. That's very possible. But I want to submit to you, is it possible that Joshua, in his close association with Moses, there on the mountain and there in leading the people, had seen God work time and time again? to where when he came to the borders of Canaan and he saw a giant that stood nine or ten feet tall. I don't know how tall they were. And he saw that the small, weak armies of Israel compared to the giant, well-trained armies of Canaan. The Joshua said, I don't care what they look like. I serve a bigger God. Is it possible that it was because of his association with Moses that Joshua 
became the man that he was. So Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verses 7 and 8. Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them. I'm sorry. Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to your fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear, nor be discouraged. Moses is encouraging Joshua. Moses is empowering Joshua. And because of the sin of Moses there in the wilderness, just before entering the land of Canaan, God had told Moses, you're not going to be able to lead Israel all the way in. Someone else is going to have to take your place. You're going to die here on the mountain. And that's what happened. They went up in the mountain and Joshua was left as the leader of Israel. Moses could not lead Israel in. But at the same time, in a sense, Moses did. Because Moses had trained another leader. Moses had mentored another leader. And that man, Joshua, became the new Moses who led Israel into the promised land. So my question for you today is simply this. Who are you in this story? Are you... Like Moses, a leader in God's cause? You might think, oh no, I'm not a leader. I'm just a church member. Regular, old, pew-warming church member. Really? I mean, really, how many people come to church on Saturday morning in London, Kentucky, when you could be out there walking up and down in the chicken festival and have... I mean, seriously. If you are a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, if you are here today. You are here because you believe in something. You are here where most of your friends are not. You are here because you are a leader. I want to tell you a story. When I was, and I told this, I actually shared this story in an elders meeting, so for a couple of you, a few of you, it's, it's going to be a repeat. But when I was young, I, I, I was brought up in this in this church, not this congregation, but in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And uh, I was baptized, actually, in the Grove Church, but shortly after that, my family moved to the Somerset Church. And uh, as, a, as a young adult, I liked going to, going to church. My family was always in church every week, and I loved studying the Bible, but I was very, very shy, very introverted. Some of you, some of you knew me back then, but... Probably not very well because nobody knew me very well. Um, I never talked to anybody. But there was a gentleman uh, who was the head elder of our church, Kevin Burke. And many of you know Kevin. And he became my friend. And he talked to me. He kind of brought me out of my shell. We worked together a little bit. And we he did computer technology and I did computers. And so we kind of had something in common there. And our church was putting on an evangelistic series. And uh, the church, of course, needed all hands on deck. Well, Kevin, I think he was strategizing a little bit anyway. But he came to me and he says, Daniel, we need someone to run the sound. And I think you could run the sound if I showed you how to do it. I'd never run a soundboard before, but he showed me how to do it. And because I know how to do computers, it was pretty simple. So, I mean, I, I liked that because I could sit in the back. Nobody could see me. I could sit behind a little curtain and I could run the volumes up and down. And if I did it right, nobody knew I was there. 
And that was my whole goal, was to make sure that I ran the sound so well that nobody ever thought anything was happening back there and, and everything was nice and smooth. And so I, I could do that. So I had a job in the church for the first time, an official job as an adult. I, you know, as a kid, you know, I did little things in church, you know, put the felts up and, you know. But as an adult, I had a, I had a job in the church. And before long... My, well, my dad taught the Sabbath school class, and my dad and Kevin, between the two of them, got me into teaching the adult Sabbath school class once in a while. And I figured it wasn't so bad, because I'd figure out what was the most controversial question in the adult Sabbath school lesson. This is how bad I was. I'd figure out what the most controversial question was, and I would ask that towards the beginning of the class, and get everybody talking about it, and then I didn't have to talk very much, because I was an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> get an argument going, you know, and then when the time was up, I'd say, okay, I think it's time for closing prayer. <laughs> we never got much past Monday's lesson, but <laughs> but that's how I started. And, I, and you know, after, after a while, I know, I was kind of a brat, but <laughs> after a while, um, I'm not sure if Kevin had anything to do with it. I don't know what goes on at nominating committees that I'm not a part of, but the nominating committee asked me to serve as an elder. Now, I always thought that elders were like old people. And out here I was, I'm like barely 20, if I was even 20. Um, and I said, and, and Kevin was the one, I think, that was asking me. I said, Kevin, I'm not old enough to be an elder. And, and Kevin Burke, in his, his quiet way, he, he shared with me, he actually gave me a Bible study. He says, elder doesn't mean how old you are. It means that the church wants you to be a leader and shared with me some of the principles of that. And I said, well, I've got to be a husband of one wife. I don't have a wife. He's like, that doesn't matter. It just means you don't have more than one wife. <laughs> Funny story. I was at the chicken festival yesterday. Someone said, they, they know we're Seventh-day Adventists. They're like, Seventh-day Adventists, one wife? Yeah, only one wife. <laughs> We're not polygamous. You believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Yeah, we believe in that. Okay. <laughs> so one wife. I didn't have a wife, but that was okay. He's, Kevin Burke said, it's like, just not more than one wife. <laughs> okay. Okay, I, I have no intentions of ever having more than one. <laughs> I love the one I have. Don't get me wrong. No more. <laughs> but that's how it went. And so I was asked to serve as an elder in the church. I went on a mission trip. Um, and it wasn't just Kevin, but there, there were others who came into my life. And it was because of the wise and careful mentorship of those leaders. Kevin would, would tell me, hey, Daniel, I've got this Bible study down in uh, McCurry County. So I would park my, I would meet him at a certain point, park my car, jump in his car every week. And we would go down to McCurry County. And we would do a Bible study. I'd never given anyone a Bible study. I couldn't give a Bible study. I didn't know how. But guess how I learned? I sat there. And Kevin was giving the Bible study. He said, Daniel, can you look up uh, Exodus chapter 20? Yeah, I can look up Exodus 20. Can you read the verse? I can read the verse. And the next week, he'd say, well, can you read this part out of the lesson? I can read this part out of the lesson. And pretty soon, I was giving the Bible study, and he was sitting there looking up the verses. I'm not sure exactly where it happened or how it happened. But then I could give a Bible study. Then I went on a mission trip. Then I went to Africa. And I could tell you the rest of the story. It's a long story, but we don't have time for the whole story. I still don't know how I ended up standing here. I really don't know. But I can tell you how it started. It was with 
people like Kevin Burke, who saw potential in a shy young kid and said, hey, I want you to run the sound booth. Hey, I want you to get involved. I want you to do something. And didn't just throw it at me, but sat there next to me and made sure I knew how to do it until I could do it. So I want to ask you again, what kind of leader are you? Are you like Moses? Are you one of the senior leaders in God's work? Then I want to ask you, who is your Joshua? Who are you mentoring? Who are you taking under your wing and showing them how to do the things that you do? Or maybe you're more like Joshua. Maybe you are the younger leader who worked for more than 40 years with little or no recognition, but humbly served Moses and was able to witness firsthand God's working through Moses and Israel. If you're like Joshua, my friends, who is your Moses? Who is mentoring you? Can you ask someone, hey, give me some wisdom. Share with me. Someone who's gone before. And you know you can be in both positions at the same time. And really, even age doesn't make all that much difference. Moses was mentored by his father-in-law. My friends, my appeal to you is this. Will you be a leader in God's cause? If so, can we break the cycle of history? So that rather than the history of Israel that said when the leader died, the people went astray, that instead the history can be the history of Moses and Joshua to continue on until our Lord returns in the clouds of heaven. I don't want us to just be leaders like a shooting star that shine brightly for a moment, but like a candle to light other leaders until we reach our heavenly home. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, may we follow you each and every step of the way. May we be the leaders like Moses and Joshua who will lead your people to the promised land. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.